Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the campfire. It's the first campfire chat that we've had this year. And my name's Glenn James. If you're new to the podcast, well, this is a little bit different. What we're doing today, we do a bit of a longer form chat. It's just like we're around a campfire. Today, we've got Vince Scully, who's the um, the chief of marshmallows and stocking the environmentally safe timber that we're burning. Yes, the OG. The OG. Vince, welcome back. Vince good Scully. To, it's good to be back, Glenn. Haven't had a marshmallow since before Christmas. It's been a hot minute. And today we've got Blair Hannon, who is with Global X. Global X is our Thursday show partner. So this episode is brought to you by Global X. And we'll talk a little bit about what Global X are doing in the ETF and investing world. Blair, welcome to the campfire. Thanks, Glenn. That was nowhere near as good as Vince's intro, though. I'm a little bit, <laughs> I, I think I want a bit more. <laughs> Yeah, let's give him some more. Blair, him is, Blair is our new Esky king. He stocks the, the drinks at the campfire. He uh, he makes sure all things are humming along in our beverage department. And he brought the damper. He brought the damper as well. Okay, that's a bit, a bit more Australian. So that's yeah. So, Australian. so, Blair, tell us your role at Global X ETFs. Let's like just start. Global X ETFs, what it is quickly. Um, for a lot of probably your listeners, Glenn, you know, this, this business historically in Australia was called ETF Security, so ETFS um, for some. And uh, in the middle of last year, uh, there was an acquisition by GlobalX and there's a subsequent rebrand on the back of that as well. So that, that business sort of no longer exists, but it still exists in, in all shape and form in terms of, I guess, the products that most of your listeners probably know. And there's a few there that we obviously just, you can discuss today if, if we want to, but, you know, Gold is one of them, obviously it's well known. Um, ACD, another one, maybe more for the ticker code than maybe for mm. the underline, that's okay. Um, so what, yeah, what does GlobalX do? Um, I guess, look, we're a little bit different than the the big uh, ETF players, the, the Black Rocks of the world, the iShares and the Vanguards. You know, we know that they're, they're vital. It's, mm. They're really important. We know what they do. Um, but I think what we are trying to do is just sort of give those alternative offers, you know, really around the thematics. Uh, again, we can discuss that today. Um, really around like alternative sources of income, commodities, these sorts of areas. So, look, essentially, you know, going back to your actual question, um, which is that's not what you asked, but I'll answer yeah. what you did ask, uh, was, um, yeah, look, I'm really here to help talk to clients, talk to investors, get them to understand what we're trying to do, what what, what, what the products actually mean, how it fits in a portfolio, uh, what role we're going to play, like what outcomes they're actually going to be achieving by investing in these. So, you know, hopefully, you know, we can you know, get some of that out of the way today and give, give some people some understanding of how we think and how, if it's, if it's slightly differently than again, some of those other, those bigger players. Yeah. And so the purpose of the campfire chats, because it is a new year and a heap of new listeners, 
we just talk about a heap of questions and comments of any type that are in the Facebook group. And I wanted to really uh, get Blair in uh, today uh, from Global X just to, I don't know, give their spin on it. Uh, they are our Thursday show partner. So Global X helped bring the podcast to you. And just a bit of sidebar housekeeping. When we look for show partners, it's a genuine win-win, you see. Like, we, we're we not bound to not say the V word or the B word. Like, everyone's real and we're living in this world and everyone's got its place. So, sure, Global X helped bring the podcast to you, but we're not bound not to say Vanguard or BlackRock. And you'll see in the, some of these discussions that their products complement other products in the marketplace. So that's just a bit of um, 101 housekeeping, um, what I wanted to say, and, and just, yeah, thanks GlobalX for supporting no, what we're doing I, here with the podcast. I think it's happy to help, but I think, I think the reason we're happy to help these, like a podcast like yours is because I think your audience and yourself, you're, you're, doing, you're actually doing a proper service to the business. I think a lot of the times, to your point around, not talking about BlackRock or Vanguard, those guys are doing great things and they and they deserve to be talked about by anyone. It doesn't matter if it's for another company or not. So I think that's the thing. It's, you know, it's got to be unbiased and that's, I think, what you're doing a really good job at. Yeah, sweet. Well, let's dive right into some questions. Kate O'Neill in the Facebook group, and I thought, <laughs> I, I was just like, sounds like she works for Global X. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> Thank you, Kate. No, um, no but Kate. it's no, a good question and we can get this going. We've got a heap of questions. We've got a heap of time. Uh, she says thematic ETFs. What future trends are Global X looking at for future funds? Anything around diversity? Thinking similar to SHE, she. Do we know what she is? Is that the hydrogen fund? No, it's no, definitely not the hydrogen fund. Um, <laughs> I believe she is a, a US based women yes, focused yes. ETF. Oh. Yeah, I actually don't know the provider is uh, oh. on top of my head, but that's I think that's the idea. Uh, look, yeah, excellent question. I think, look, Thematic, so I think the other thing about GlobalX is we're a global business. So we do have some history around thematics. Um, we, we're, we're lucky uh, to be able to leverage a lot of what our US businesses do. Um, and understandably, in the case of that, they're not to be, you know, I'm, I'm actually not sure how big the US ETF market is, but it's well into the trillions, the multiple trillions. And on the back of that, you know, you get a really good basically test case about what's happening globally. And, and if, if, potentially something like this, and I'm not saying it will be, but would be relevant for an Australian investor. Look, there is some slight differences for sure, but, you know, there's a generalisation that we're pretty close to it, how, how the US sort of invest. I think when we think about thematic ETFs, uh, what, what we want to make sure, there's basically a, a few steps that we want to make sure you want to do. You want to make sure that it's truly a future, you know, trend. It's not, it's not a fad. It's not going to be around for five minutes. It's got to have... It's got to be really. It's got to have a lot of longevity. It's got to have probably at least ten years. And really, what you want is evergreen, an mm. evergreen profile to that. I think the second part of it is around thematics. Is it's got to be investable. So the the problem is if you've got these positions that sound great on paper, but you actually can't buy a range and diversified range of you know in the case of these companies. Well, then you can't. What are you going to do? You can't actually package it up in ETF. You can't buy it. Maybe you can do it via private market. So I'll give you an example of that. Is like. There's not a lot of really, you know, if you wanted to do a carbon capture ETF, not a lot of carbon capture companies or not a breadth of carbon capture companies that are listed. So if you did, you know, it's hard to pack it up together and give you a really good scope of that. Um, and then we, then the last part we need to have to that point earlier, we need to have conviction that this is going to be an actual theme and it's going to have long term and it's going to be um, proper, like a proper paradigm shift in what we power people are thinking. So uh, the way that we think in... I guess this is this is verbal, but we have this on our website. You have this thing called the S curve, and the S curve 
if you think about it in the context of how business cycles work, which is, you know, we're seeing one right now around inflation and around rates, um, S-curves are much more around technological adoption. So this is much more around, it starts in the bottom left and as it, as it grows, you see adoption by, uh, by the mass market and then obviously it peters off um, over time. And there's some good examples of this. Um, so I think you look at this particular question around diversity, I probably wouldn't really call it a theme. It's not really a theme because it's not like, it's not like an adoption process necessarily. So I'll give you some examples. So if you look at um, social media as potentially a, what was it originally a theme, that would be at the far end of that S-curve. And what that means is, is that what's a company who's involved in social media? We'll, we'll talk about Meta, for example. What are they doing to try to capture the growth again? Well, they're going back to the start of the S-curve by trying to do the metaverse. Mm-hmm. They want to capture that growth because they're probably more in the, that platform's more going to be iterative. It's not going to be these big leaps anymore. So, um, yeah, look, by all means, have, for the listeners, have a quick squeeze on the website. It's a really good prop, uh, proponent of how you can think about your type of investment. All these, we've, what we've done, which I think is good, plotted all these themes across the S-curve where they would sit. So back to Kate's question. So we know with United States, like you just think the size of the population, for example, you know, I went into a gas station and there was like 15 flavours and types of Skittles, right? Where in Australia there's like one or two, there's sour and there's the normal, right? So a bigger population can have more products in market because of the population. So obviously with a thematic fund, you know, we know there is a she quote unquote index. They've, the State Street have obviously seen that there is a market that we can strap a fund to that index. So it goes back to Global X ETFs, particularly in Australia here. When you create a fund, you're not only looking at if there is a legitimate underlying investment that you can access, but you're also looking to, well, do we have the investors to invest in it anyway? Oh, I think for sure. I think, go back to those points I mentioned earlier and what, what type of thematics we'd want to bring out. But, you know, as we're a business mm. and we're a for-profit business, um, with the idea is that, yes, we need to make an assessment of is, is any ETF that we're going to bring out in the market going to be successful? Now, it's not, it's not a perfect science, as you, can, as you can attest if you go look at the list of anyone's ETFs, that some are successful, some aren't. And so you're going to figure that out. I think the good part about, again, having a US headquartered business is that you have some idea that you've, you've, had, a, you've had a test case. You've had a mm. test case that hasn't worked. And that goes back to that point. But I think, you're, I think you've, you have sort of nailed it a little bit there, Glenn. I think the Australian market, whilst we have come a long way, whilst we have a, a huge amount of ETFs on offer, the choice is more abundant than it's ever been. Mm. You know, you go to a point of that and it probably is a little bit too niche for this market in its current state. Mm. Um, going back to that point. So there, let's say, I'm not sure, again, I need to find out the exact number, but it's something in the vicinity of trillions. Mm. You can then get a fund and I don't know what size she is. You might've had a look, but even if it's sort of two, 300, 400 million, that's, that's still very, a very, it's a drop in the bucket. Uh, 206 million. Okay. So drop in the bucket over there. Yeah. In, in the same sort of numbers here, you're talking, that's probably a $2 million fund, $3 million fund, which is not equitable for... Uh, uh, an ETF provider mm. to do. So I think we will get there at some point. I think it's, again, this is why, you know, shows like you and everyone else is sort of educating on the ETF market that's not to some certain degree biased by, by being a fund manager is helpful because your listeners are getting up that curve. So on this um, future trends, and now that I'm thinking more, trying to like distill my point, if the runway to get gender diversity and all diversity at board level and at CEO level 
in a top 200 company. We're not there yet. When we get there, if it is in three years, for example, that's a shorter runway than if it was going to take AI 15 years to quote unquote arrive. But then again, are we investing in the likes of she or a thematic fund one, because the growth is there in that industry. And I think the carve out with the whole she thing is the companies perform better with the diversity yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, or are we investing because of that um, screening thing? Like I want to invest in this. And this is the thing, isn't it? With ESG, I necessarily wouldn't necessarily call it them the thematics because you're not really on that, that S curve. It's not really an adoption. It's a negative screen. So in the case of she, um, I, I don't know the exact details yeah. of the methodology of the index, but I'm assuming it's a negative screen. They're removing, they're, they're taking companies out that don't fit the provisor, provisor that that is going to mm. be suitable or potentially that there's companies that are moving towards that path so they get included. So look, I, I probably wouldn't bucket this as a thematic. Um, that's not to say it's a good, good or bad investment. That's, mm. not, that's not what it's about. But you know, if I think about what a true thematic is, it is like... Electric vehicles is a great example because there is adoption over time. It is a change in technology. It's a shift in terms of the people's behaviour and how they're doing, how they're investing their money and, and spending I, their money. I think like a, an investment like She would be one of those, you know, satellites that I might have in my portfolio that I 100% want to get on board with. And you might have a look at the the top companies. You might go, I'm going to make that a 40% holding him because that's what I value and I like what that index is about. But like anything, you know, we talk about spaceship on this podcast, like you, you live by the sword and you die by the sword. Like if you're going all in on something and it doesn't go as good or as bad or as good as what you wanted it to, well, you've just got to know that you lay in the bed that you make for yourself. And that's not saying I'm not talking specifically about she, mm. but I'm talking about any other thematic or satellite. If you go full ham at it, you know, people suddenly realize that spaceship was hundred percent tech. <laughs> like surprise, when we surprise. were getting the, you know, negative 35% return. So I think it is an educational thing and we, we don't put all our eggs in the one basket. I, and this is, I think is, this is a, a case in point for all ETFs, it is going underneath the hood mm. of what these ETFs represent because that's the whole point of ETFs. You get, it's transparent. You can have a look at the top 10 companies of this of this particular, this one or any other. So you know what you're getting into. I try to always say to, to investors and, and whoever you know, wants to listen to this, you know, is this ETF going to help you get what you expect your outcome to be? Mm. Because if you go and buy... And like I'm, spaceships an example. Like if you're going to buy, and your expectation was that that was a broad-based fund that gave you a range of you know across MSCI award, whatever it is, and you go, oh, hang on, it's not. It's tech only. And so my outcome didn't meet my expectations. That's when the problems arise. Mm. So that's why ETFs are great because you know what you're getting. I've I've just pulled up, and I want to move on from she, but I just think it's a fascinating thing to talk about because I hadn't heard of it before um, we press record. Um, that, that's nothing like a bit of pre, pre-recording research thing. <laughs> hey, this, this is, is the best chat. part of this campfire. Yeah, it's pitch black. You, you're seeing the inner workings of my mind. It's, um, We're sitting in the dark. He's looking at his phone. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> right, yeah. Um, top 10 holdings, Microsoft, Visa, Apple, Meta, United Health, Accenture. Is that how you pronounce it? Accenture. Accenture. Yeah. Cisco, JP Morgan Chase, 
Bank of America and ding, 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 Chevron. So, you know, there's some good household names there. That's going to probably be very similar to a, a broad market index. But, you know, if you don't want an oil company or a fuel company, you're not buying Xi because they've got one and a half percent in Chevron. And that, that's the other part. Look, look at the sector of that. You know, the weighting would probably be, I'd say, technology. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's pretty much tech. tech. So again, like when you think about how it's performed, Visa's not tech necessarily, it's probably consumer. Um, but, you know, think about how it's performed. It probably has performed in line with technology. So you might have thought, again, I'm getting this theme. It's moving that direction, but I've underperformed. Oh, here we go. Yeah. yeah. 27% yeah. tech, 14% healthcare, 11% financials. Yeah. So what am I doing there? I'm buying large cap. U.S. growth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So is that different to a, a factor fund, which you could buy, probably buy for a fraction of the price, where I just buy large cap growth? But this is the thing that I can buy large cap U.S. growth that has a diversity checkbox because that's important to me. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, is that a, an investment thesis that says, I believe that large cap US growth diversity is an investment that's consistent with my overall investment goals. And that is for? And that's why it's called personal finance, guys. Exactly. It's personal. Hey, Wayne has a question, and I don't know if Wayne works with Global X, but we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about it kind of in line with the themes. Tell me how to get exposure to hydrogen. Also, tell me about the different thematics and what stage of the life cycle they are in. How do you diversify risk when investing in thematics? What time horizon do you need? What particular thematic is Global X particularly excited about? Do I say particularly right? Particularly. Anyway. Um, that is a tough one, though. It is. So in, in Wayne's world, there's obviously a lot of hydrogen going on. Look, so, look, there's a lot going on there. Talk to us about, are there any themes that you guys are excited about as a company? Look, and this is the thing, it's in going back to this S curve idea, it's we, we want to make sure we're not, hey, this is the best thing on the shelf, go and grab it. Like mm. if you don't if you're not buying this, if you're missing out. Um, it's about it's about choice. It's about saying what's gonna resonate with you. And let me let me sort of provide an example on that. So one of the things we are talking about a fair bit is the whole idea of decarbonization, what that means, what that represents. And it represents different things to different people as does ESG. So if you, if you don't want to do that, and we are segmenting actually quite nicely here, if you don't want to do that ESG idea of I'm just going to cut out mining companies or I'm going to cut out whatever they are, the, the, the UNSDGs, whatever that, whatever that is, but I still want to play decarbonisation, I think this is where thematics can help. So one of the angles that we've come at it from, and, and Wayne, who doesn't work for us, um, uh, so Kate and Wayne, both, both non-employees. <laughs> um, they might work for you, so I'm not sure, but um, no. no. Uh, is, so, so decarbonisation, what, what, what are we going to need? And we've seen this on the back of um, COP27 last year. So what are we going to need to get to, you know, whether it's net zero or close to net zero by, by 2050 or, or in the future? So what do we need to do? The unfortunate thing we need to do is mine a whole bunch more resources to build the infrastructure that provides us with wind farms and solar panels and other types of, you know, electric vehicles and lithium batteries, et cetera. So that in itself is not very ESG friendly, but it is 100% required to do what we need to do to get there. So so you got what we're saying in the case of this is, look, let's have some options. Hydrogen's one option. That's really around, um, more so around powering transport. You know, it's still early days. It's 
Do you know that I reckon hydrogen's a better technology than batteries for cars? Well, the problem at the moment... I went on a YouTube rabbit hole. Oh, yeah, so 3 a.m. later. (laughs) um, The problem a little bit with hydrogen is at the moment the the cheaper version of hydrogen is is not very environmentally friendly, Uh, whereas the green hydrogen... Technology is probably not really there yet. So when we look at hydrogen, we think it's probably at the start of that S curve again. I'm just right. using that as an example. Um, as a side note, and I'm not trying to promote other podcasts, but um, there's a good, I think it's a Wall Street Journal podcast around Nikola, which is the hydrogen truck out of the yes, States. Yes. And there's like a, it's a five-parter about, more about fraud than it is about hydrogen. Mm-hmm. But the point is they could, they just, they, they struggle to get there. It's a complete side note, but the hydrogen is one example, mm. one example. But then there's obviously lithium, which is, we probably won't dive into that too deeply because it's just so well talked about and well known. Um, but then there's this whole sort of green metals basket that kind of encapsulates. And I think the, for me, the really interesting one is copper, but copper's in there, lithium's in there, nickel, cobalt, all these things that, again, to manufacture and the infrastructure that we need to do this, you, we need an absolute buckload of these of these resources. The problem is, and this is where you get back to the economics, um, is the supply and demand's out of whack. This is why lithium's going up so much because the supply and demand's out of whack. There's, you know, obviously demand's higher than supply. So what happens in, the, in that sort of triangle? Well, price goes up. The same is for copper. Copper really at this point in time is in a similar situation where they've got this base case of copper, which is, you know, in really good economic times, it goes into every house, it goes into all the infrastructure. It's the best conductor we have at, you know, that current price point. So what happens when we need to go and build all this new infrastructure and that new infrastructure needs between two and five, six times the amount of copper that the traditional infrastructure did. So EVs is the same, you know, solar power plants, um, so, sorry, solar arrays, wind farms. Well, it's got to come from somewhere. So what I think the, the interesting part about this is what you've seen in the, in the past really six months, and it's local this is, BHP, what do they do? They, they saw the same thing. Mike Henry, who's the CEO of BHP, said, you know, this is potential that copper's in a full full deficit by the end of the decade. They went and bought the other largest copper miner we have in Australia, which is um, Oz Minerals. So what did Rio do? They said, oh, we've got a pretty big copper mine up in Mongolia. We've got a shared player. Let's buy them out as well. So they bought Turquoise Hill. So these guys are leading the effect of that. But it's, again, these are, these, are, these are really long-term themes. So that's, I think it's one area that we're trying to sort of say, hey, and hydrogen's a good point on that. Think about where we are on that curve. It's really early days for some of this sort of, uh, even though it's well talked about media-wise, but it's still early days as part of this process to move up that curve and the adoption of these um, these technologies. I think Australia, I think we're 30% renewables mm. um, and, you know, Europe, these sort of areas, they don't they don't have a bunch of coal and gas sitting in the ground. Mm. They're, they're driving down this path at, at an absolute pace now. Yeah, it's fascinating because even the, um, particularly around the hydrogen and the hydrogen cell um, cars, for example, uh, the rabbit hole went down through YouTube. It's kind of the, um, it's the same thing as going from horse and cart to cars because it was the chicken and the egg. Like we've built a car, but we've got no roads. Like we need to have paved roads and good roads. So do you do the roads first, build it and then they come or... So do you do the cars and then hope the roads come. So I think we're seeing the same, particularly with um, the battery cars. Like I know that when I was watching the Australian Open earlier in the year, uh, BP are now coming out with a um, electric charging thing. So, you know, they've got the infrastructure. So how can they 
turn that into electric rapid charge or hydrogen. I don't know. And this is exactly part of the curve, isn't it? Like this is where like the infrastructure in Australia is not there. Mm. My dad was like, oh, look, he's going to buy a new car. It's like, maybe I'll do it. But he's like, I'm just not sure I'm going to make it to where I want to go. So that, that mentality, mm. whether it's real or not, you know, he would have done his research. So in the US, we're in a different ball game. China is miles ahead of where we are. And that's a little bit about, again, all to, you know, lithium is so, it's so um, you know, focal for Australian because of the price where it's gone. But if it wasn't, I think Australians probably would underestimate the move of where EVs are going and where they're up to because they just can't see with their own eyes. You know, that old sort of Peter Lynch Buffettism, you know, being able to use the product and understand it and then you can invest in it. It's just not, it's just not here yet. Mm. But if you go to the US or go to Europe or go to, especially go to China, you will, it's, it's literally, it's everywhere. I mean, when I was in LA at the end of last year, I've not seen as many Teslas as ever before. Like, it's huge. Like, so wild. I mean, the interesting, I mean, that's a good example of a, an investment theme where you can have a, a thesis that says electric cars, renewable is the future. So now how do I invest in that? And if you go back 20 years or less, it was really hard to execute on those theses as a retail investor. Um, I mean, when things like the the Wilder Hill New Energy Index came out in 99, 2000, it was now a Bloomberg something, but there's a bunch of ETFs around the world that trade on this index. The only way you could access it back then was by buying some exotic structured product from some investment bank somewhere. And now we can all do it. And you don't really have to worry too much about how big this fund is because your liquidity is not other investors, it's the market maker. So do you want to talk a little bit about how, what that means for a retail investor and why I should, you know, how that's different? Does that make, does that make any sense? Well, let's, let's use this S-curve again. I think because ETFs are just a financial technology in their own right. And we can think about it as where they are on this adoption of this curve. And we, we know we've come a long way. But I think the ETF is just the perfect tool for thematics because it can be narrow enough that you know what you're getting and you can pick and put it in a portfolio. Now, we won't not talk about portfolio construction here necessarily, but if you use copper, right? If you want to buy a copper, you could do that. If you want to buy an EV car, you can do that. If you want to buy, again, there's so many different ones in the US, but this, I mean, we've got probably got, I think we're up to about 20, 25 here, maybe a little bit more now. So you can do a fair bit in terms of thematics, but in comparison to traditionally a managed fund, they're going to be much broader. Um, or a company, you're going to get specific risk around the management or whatever whatever it is that goes along with that company. Cash flows, you know, you're going to do a lot more work. So an ETF is just that perfect package to say, hey, I, I like this idea, this theme, whatever that is, and I can play that by just buying this one ETF. And then, again, by that, by the virtue of what they do, I can look through and see what I'm buying. Um, and I can trade it whenever I, can, I want to. So it, I think it's just... You know, I'm obviously an ETF guy telling telling everyone how good ETFs are. but Yeah, but it, it, I, I like it for the diversification play. Like, so for example, you know, I was just looking at my portfolio. I've got, um, for example, I've got some legacy holdings from GPT and Dexas. It's like, well, why not just use VAP? <laughs> like, I want exposure to a REIT. Well, why not de-risk and still have that exposure with 
minimal yeah, with the, internal with the index. I, th- I think we, do, we don't go too far though because there's, there's a still a lot of value in understanding the cash flows, the, you know, doing doing work on companies and saying I've identified something because that risk you're usually going to get a better return if you're right. And the, the chances are you might not be right and you might, mm. it might go down. So it's not, it's not a perfect you know, scenario, but the risk return profile is better in single stock than it is going to be in an ETF. But that's a, that's a lot of work. Mm. You've got to be on top of that. And you know, there's professional investors across either a fund manager, um, investment banking analyst who get this stuff wrong. So, so my, my always, you know, and my background was, um, as you guys was, it was easy in advice in terms of, you know, basically picking stocks. It, it was so hard. You know, you're relying on other people's sort of um, research, you know, that's never, never right. So it got to a point where this ETFs are just, again, a better, better package, a better tool to solve the problem of, I, I think this general idea is where I want to go. And if I like that idea, I can package it up together and I get a bunch of companies. So I'm not, you know, I'm not worried about if a CEO gets fired or... Mm. The CFO is going to run and going to run and take, take some money, all that sort of stuff. It, it, it somewhat gets washed out in that package. So I think, yeah, look for me again. This is more personal, but I just think the package just it just stacks up as a, it's a great tool. We'll take a quick break because we've been going almost half an hour, a bit over, and we'll come back and rip into some of these other questions. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Okay, we're back. Daniel Quinn in the Facebook group. He's asked some cool questions. VDHG, which is the one-stop shop, versus splitting up and doing the various ETFs yourself, inclusive of gold, bonds, and REITs, etc. So, look, this is the... This is... I always get fascinated from this question because with investing, we can fall into the trap that the more funds I have and the more that I do it myself, I'm going to get a better outcome because I'm putting more effort into it and it's more sophisticated and complex. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you reckon? It's like, I would be more like me personally, I'd probably be more VDGR and slap some satellites on it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, mean, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a question that we get all the time. I'm sure you've seen this a lot too. Yeah, Blair, sure. That, People get a bit obsessed about, you know, what's the best ETF in 2023 um, without 
thinking through what it is that they're trying to do. You know, the number of arguments I've seen as to whether I should buy um, VTI or IVV because there's one basis point difference in the fees. Okay, this is not managed. So if you're trying to pick a f- an ETF or indeed any investment, you've got to start with goals and objectives, leads you to asset allocation, leads you to break that down into sectors. And once you've identified a sector, now you say, well, is there an index or indexes that Indices even. Or indices. No, I think actually indexes is (laughs) actually the the correct modern. They're replaceable. You can go either way. Um, That reasonably reflects that thing. And then once you've got an index, now you can pick a fund. And so the advantage of an all-in-one like a VDHG or a DHHF or whatever the flavor of the month is at the moment is that you have a pre-packaged Asset, and asset allocation and sector decision made for you. Mm. If that aligns with what you're actually trying to do, um, then, and you're not investing you know, 50, 100 grand, then it's a reasonably good place to start. But, you know, does VDHG meet your requirements? Um, it's got hedge global equities. Is that what you want? If you're investing in global equities, why are you investing in global equities? Well, probably because you want exposure to other economies, other regulatory environments um, and hedging away your currency differences might be undoing part of what you're trying to achieve. Um, so, yeah, you've got to work out what it is that you want to invest before you decide that, well, I want the six-pack, whereas I might actually want a, a mixed dozen. But this whole thing with investing and the one-stop shop, half the appeal is the automatic quarterly rebalancing that removes you from having to to rebalance yourself. That's right. And, 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 don't, un- and don't underestimate the um, the benefits of automated rebalancing mm. because most people won't get around to doing it and they'll end up with something that's way different to um, what they thought they were buying. Yeah, I, I think like the whole portfolio in a box thing with Vanguard or beta shares, you know, it th- at least they've got some science behind it. And they've obviously done back testing, and you know well, everything works in a back test. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't bring it out, would you? Yeah, but like I don't know. I just think, it, what are you trying to do? Like, I would go back to what your asset allocation is that you're wanting to achieve, yeah. and like, does your platform allow you to see the actual asset allocation and know that if one of your uh, satellites has increased? When do you know to sell down and put back into the core? And are you staying on top of it? Mm. Yeah, most people, life gets in the way. It's life's too busy to keep focusing on these things. Yeah. Look, I, yeah, I think it's a perennial question. It's got, it, it sits in to me the same bucket as the active versus passive decision. That it, I mean, the discussion we have that we have, you know, in perpetual because it's just mm. asset allocation is very hard. Selecting stocks is very hard. This this solves that problem for a lot of people. But if you want to delve into this and and do some work yourself and work that out, well, then there's then there's value in doing that yourself because that means you're more involved and you have you know that you're trying to you know to your point, Vince. Though, if you're then going to forget about it in three weeks later, well, that's not going to help you either. Because um, I think you know I think this is the thing with all types of investing. Stock selection's hard. ETF selection's hard. Asset allocation is a whole different ball game in terms of how you're splitting up those asset allocations based on what your 
based on what your situation is, there's, there's some really interesting ones in the, in the US around that basically are time-weighted or goal-based goal where they will, they will shift the asset allocation over time as you get older. So it will go higher risk, more equities, uh, lower bond allocation. Well, that's like the My Super products in Australia. Yeah, essentially. So they're going to move with you yeah. because again, like, you know, to your point, rebalancing. So this is, you know, might be high growth. You know, maybe when you're 40, you don't want high growth. Mm. You know, you want, to, you want to move towards a more balanced, depending on what your situation is. But I think that's the other thing. It's, you know, people to understand, truly take a good look at themselves and go, well, what type of risk do I really want to take on? Um, and know what that actually means. I think this is, the, this is the problem. I think people really know really well what returns means because they can see as the number cannot get their head around risk. It mm. is so hard to inherently define, and this is, this is the value of financial advice, in my opinion, and so it's so valuable because they can help you with strategy and with that risk, and it goes back to that point around when times are tough, like how are you dealing with that, with that volatility and that risk? This will solve a certain degree of that problem because it will rebalance back. You won't get super out of weight. You won't get you know, equities running away or the bonds. Last year wasn't a great example of that, but it, it solves a lot of problems for a lot of people. It does, and I think there's also a little bit of simplification in the media around what asset allocation is, that people start thinking, oh, all 90-10, you know, 90% growth, 10% defensive funds are created equal. Well, how you get to your 90-10 um, matters almost more than the 90-10. So, you know, am I getting my, is my 10 local bonds? Is it global bonds? They will give me a different completely different risk profile. Does my fixed interest include a whole bunch of bank hybrids? Does it include junk debt? Um, so how I get to my 10 and my 90, so is, is it large cap? Is it global? Is it small cap? Is it growth? Is it, defend, is it um, value? Um, so the factors that go in there make, you know, I give you two 90-10 funds that are wildly different both in terms of risk and return. And without starting with the the investment goal, so you know, are you seeking to get the highest return possible regardless of risk, or am I seeking to take as little risk as I need to to get the return I need to meet my goal, or do I just want to beat the market? So which of those three objectives are you trying to fulfil? I reckon like with investing... Do you need to beat the market? Well, I'm not sure that beating the market is actually a particularly useful goal. No, but like... Uh, because to, to do it, you've A, got to pick a market. Yeah, what it, are you, what's your benchmark? Yeah, and then you go, well, and then you have to do something different. Yeah. Or, which usually means take more risk. Because... And, and if I outperform, the, if the market goes down 50% and I'm down 40%, is that getting me any closer to my goal? Mm. I've beaten the market, so I've achieved that goal, mm. but is it actually helping me achieve the goal which I'm trying to achieve by not spending this money today? Because all investment is about is deferring spending today in the expectations that we'll get something better later. Yeah, I, I just think if, if someone is going to go down this road to build their own portfolio, one, you've got to put some type of framework in place so at the start of every quarter, you're logging in and hell or high water, you are rebalancing. You know, and if a, a little thematic's going good, oh, it's done 20% in this last quarter, 
you will be tempted not to touch it. That's right. Because it's doing so well. Why would I want to sell? Well, what are you doing? And the, and the whole basis of these quarterly rebalances are to remove growth and put back into defensive that will smooth out your return and de-risk along the way. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm more of a, a one-stop shop. Um, I've got my core and some little satellites and, you know, I've got... Uh, well, you've got a very good financial advisor. I do. And I've got some Global X funds as well, Vincent. Of course you do. Otherwise, wouldn't we be sitting here? But, <laughs> no, I think... Let me just finish up this. Uh, and this is the exact point. Like, beat the market. It, like, it kills me to beat the market because you've got, if you've got an asset allocation, what's the market? What's the, what market are you beating? Mm. Like yeah. you're beating an equity market? You're beating a bond? Like what market? Mm. So then if, then if, you've, if you've got a slightly different asset allocation, then... So let's say we'll use the Vanguard one as an example. You'd have to beat that. Is that the market? Like it's just a very it's a it's an old school mentality of of an active manager trying to beat a single index, and it's not the way that the world works when you're building a portfolio. It's it just doesn't doesn't stack up that way. Mm. So yes, no, I totally agree with both what you said. It's and just, a portfolio of winners isn't necessarily a, a winning portfolio. That, say yeah. that for the loud ones at the back. A portfolio of winners isn't necessarily a winning portfolio. And that's because? Well, it's like a, a football team. Like mm. if you had a team of 11 strikers, you ain't going anywhere in the World Cup. Yeah. Yeah, because each component has to be really good at what and, and that job got, is. They've got to play the position they're positioned in. Mm. And this goes back to that rest thing because you might have the best four, you know, 10 stocks that year. Might be, you might be running this ultra high risk portfolio you don't understand, but then next year you know, it's all going to crash and burn. But you think you had a great year. Mm. And most hand picked stocks end up being a factor play anyway. So if you've you, the the fu- funds or products that you've picked represent a collection of factors, whether that's growth or value or large cap or small cap or international or, or whatever, and that's about asset allocation, not about stock selection. I reckon someone who, for example, had VDHG only, and maybe, you know, you might, part of your own portfolio might be, I have 90% VDHG, 10% I have in satellites because I'm interested in this theme over there or, or whatnot, just to keep me plugged in and engaged. I reckon if you put all that research energy into your own career and your job, that would probably pay out better than the split between a DIY portfolio and VDHG. Probably. Because oh, massive, you can massive increase believer. your income. And uh, look, it'd be a shame to, to go on without mentioning that our new book, Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money, <laughs> is out. Uh, and it is available wherever you buy your books, Big W, QBD, Dimix, Amazon, Booktopia. Daniel also goes on to say, is 46 too old to really get retirement sorted by 60? Well, we know with retirement, what is retirement? It's different to everyone. And, you know, you ask someone in there, I'll, I'll, probably, I'll, I'll rephrase it. I would ask my parents 20 years ago, quote unquote, retirement is an age 65 dictated by the date that the government will pay me a social security which is benefit. 67 now. Which is 67 now. That's right. So what is retirement to you? You can retire tomorrow, but what are you going to live off? Yeah, and you know, that's about a balance between your standard of living while you're working and your standard of living after you stop working. Mm. And that trade-off 
there is no one right answer for everybody. That some people, you know, focus on retirement as the time they do all the things that they didn't do while they're working, and therefore they need a higher standard of living, and therefore they need to save more of their working life income to pay for their post-working life income. Other people will, you know, retire very simplistically. They will go by a cabin in the woods, and um, therefore can spend more of their working life. So the key to that is all about um, you know, setting aside enough to cover your bills by the time you're unable or unwilling to work. And two-thirds of people retire at a time not of their choosing. Mm. So, no, 46 is not too early. Um, and, in fact, 46 with compulsory super, um, you know, 46 is a time when people are starting to... Get to their peak of Get incoming. to their peak of mm. income earning... And um, kids are starting to get more mature. Um, they're still probably in single digits for most people in their mid-40s. I, I probably haven't uh, shared my little spiel with Blair on retirement. So, do you want me to go with you? Pitch go me. With you? Yeah, no. pitch me. Okay. Blair, I've worked out the exact amount of money you need to retire on in Australia. Do you know what it is? Personally, or just like this is anyone? Uh, no, the actual... Hardcore. Okay. Go. Do you know what no, it is? I have no idea. As much as possible. All right. So that's what you got to do, Daniel. You've got to. So you haven't discovered enough yet. I haven't discovered enough as much as possible, Vince. Because we know more money gives you options, right? Yes. But I would say what Daniel probably should do, and this is what I do with my life. I live on I, le- I live on less than I earn, and I invest the rest. I'm just building wealth. I'm not getting caught up with lifestyle inflation. No, but while you're building financial wealth, you are depreciating your human wealth. And so there's a natural trade-off that by the time you get to, I ain't working anymore, either because I'm unable or unwilling, then I have to convert enough of that human capital Mm. into financial capital to keep me going for the rest of my life. So are you saying that as humans in the modern society that we live in, in a modern economy, that we need a actual number in today's dollars that we need to target? No, I think the one thing that you need is to know what enough is. Mm. And if the answer is always more, then you'll never get there. So you've got to get to a point in your life where you know what enough is. But would you say... But enough is not necessarily a number. That's right. But would you say, philosophically, you are not at that enough thing yet if you're not saving any money each week? Well, you could do. I mean, if you're quite comfortable that you can get yourself to 67 and you are comfortable to live on $25,000 a year, then you have enough already. Mm. That's not a very big percentage of the population, I will admit. But that concept of what is enough is, you know, I break it down into three things. You need enough money to sleep at night enough purpose to get up in the morning and enough joy to sustain you through the day. And when you know what that is for you, now you've got enough. Mm. And it's not at all a number. Look, I, yeah, you guys have thought about this much more deeply than I have. But I, I, <laughs> I live and breathe this stuff. Yes, I know. But I, I, I'll ask you this because this is your point around saving or uh, spending less than you earn. Mm. I, I do find, and I'm going to stand on my own little perch, I'm, old, I'm you know, Vincent and I are grey and old, so we're mm. okay. I don't have Instagram or Facebook. I do find the changes in the mentality of, you know, to your the millennial, you know, around the spending habits and the 
perception that this stuff brings, and this is a question back probably back to you, Glenn, more than anyone. Like, do you think that makes it so hard to just do that? Like, it's very hard to, to you know, not spend more than you yeah. in the world that we live well, in. Well, I think, you know, we get the odd question, you know, people write in like, oh, I we need to buy a house, get married and travel. How do we do it? I'm like, well, we need to pick one, I think, realistically, uh, because the data would say you might not have $60,000 to spend on these three things in the next 12 months. So... I think you need to work out, are we traveling right now or in a couple of years after we buy the house? And just more um, triaging our financial goals. Um, Because, you know, the Instagram life is cool. You see all these nice images and you think, how do people do it? And for me particularly, like, I see a lot of people in my own networks and they might have bought a house and people might be thinking, oh, how did they do that? Well, they don't know that they had a parental guarantee or well, they don't know that they got an inheritance. Like, So you never really know the full story. Well, they don't story. know that they, they didn't drink 10,000 lattes. Yeah, or they didn't have a car loan for five years while they were saving. So I just think for me in particular, I'm really watching over my lifespan that once you get to a critical mass of I've got a roof over my head, be it a mortgage or rent. I don't want for anything day on day and I live a comfortable life. That's a luxury for a lot of people. I'm You're now a, already in the top 10% in the world. I'm fortunate enough to invest the rest. So it's, yeah, I, I don't know like if that really answered your question, but it's tough out there and I know the absolute number one thing that you can do is consume less than what you generate. Oh, it's the simple thing said, and like it's the hard thing to do, you know, to what you're doing, you may not say this way or whatever it is, but it's a level of sacrifice at some degree, Mm. not be massive, but at some degree you're saying, I I can't do that. I'm not going to spend on that. Hence I can invest it. But even like, you know, it's all relative. Like I make a judgment call that I don't have heaps and heaps of nice furniture because I don't value that in my life. I'd rather just invest it for... In the boat and the car. In the boat and the car. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, so I think it's a values thing as well. Like, I don't think you can have it all. I think it's the concept that you can have anything you want. You just can't have everything. Mm. Okay, Paula. (laughs) Well, yes, Paula may have said that once or twice. Um, But it is true that, you know, life is about trade-offs. And Mm. it... key to doing it well is understanding what those trade-offs are for you. Um, yeah, do you value clothes more than you value a holiday? Do you value a holiday more than you value a home? And understanding yourself is actually the first step. Mm. And you know, perhaps if we all took a bit more time to work out what I truly want, um, then you might find this is a lot easier. So we talk about a budget as being a tool that helps you to choose between what you want right now and what you truly want without relying on willpower. So that retirement question, like Daniel... So, so he, 46 is just at the starting. Yeah, you've got yeah. all the time in the world, mate. Like, But what you could do, and this is the thing that gets my goat when you see people online say, oh, if you invest $500 today, in 20 years you'll have $8 million. I'm like, it's called inflation and you need to factor that into the cost. So what you could do, you could go, if you don't have the software or the technology or if you can't find a website that will do it, 
you could go to a financial advisor, get once-off advice and say, look, this is my goal that if I fast forward at age 65, I would like $80,000 per year after tax. Can you at least do some type of modeling? And I don't love modeling, but it's good to set a direction and tell me an exact dollar amount in today's dollars. So factors in inflation, how much do I need to put away every week on top of my SG? Because a lot of people, when they do their retirement crunching and all that, you know, I had lots of clients, you've probably had them over the years. People walk in like, oh, I've got like, and particularly self-employed people. Oh, I, I've got no super. I've only got four investment properties. It's like, so you've got a retirement nest egg. You've got assets. Okay. So all I'm saying is you've got to factor in all your different assets. And part of that could be, you know, you might shave off $200,000 in today's dollars out of your house. Yeah. I mean, time does solve a lot of problems. So mm. 46 is still relatively early in the scheme of things. Mm. But as an advisor, I can tell you one of the saddest things I've ever, I ever see is you get someone who's mid-50s, kids haven't left home, big mortgage, little savings, and big spending habits. That's a tough one to make. That final spurt to try and fix that between 55 and 65 mm. is a pretty tough ask. But 46 with a lifetime of SGC behind you mm. is... Um, not a bad position to be in. Tim, but the er- earlier is better. Mm. Tim Armitage asked, can you please discuss the pros and cons of DRPs? Hey, with the Global X suite of ETFs, is there a, a set formula that you guys have that every fund that you have will do quarterly distributions or half yearly or is it circumstantial to the fund? It's circumstantial to the index a lot of the time. Right. So you, we can change that, but no, it's it's usually circumstantial to the, to the underlying index. Uh, and it's, it's not uniform at all. There's no like, there's no, there is no formula. Um, but you can DRP mm. anything, you, anything you want. You have a DRP for all the funds. Yeah. So you, it's again through the through the share registry. Mm. Um, so you know, I think there, this is this is certainly a little bit of a problem with how the, our structure in Australia works. I think with him based the him based structure that you know that there is multiple players in this. You're getting, you know, we know about the mail, but you're getting mail from. Chess, you're getting mail from either it's computer share or link or whoever. You're potentially getting mail from the ETF provider or the oil company. It's just too it's too many touch points. You know, there's no there's no simple way. Um, and I think it's it's we've there is we've talked to, to uh, share registries in the past to try to solve this. Like, how can we make how can we make this? Like, what what are we doing? Like, and obviously, people or we can opt in to emails or we can. It's just it's just the way that the structure unfortunately works. That it's not like. You know, um, Apple aren't designing the UX or this thing. Unfortunately, you know, we're getting what we've got, and this is what it is. But I think, look, the, the, to to answer the specific question, the pros and cons. I, I'm assuming that Tim's asking if he should tick that box or not tick that box. I'm guessing. Again, it depends on what their situation is. Um, you know, if Tim is seven years old and wants the income and needs it because he's, you know, or it's in his it's in self ownership of fund and they need the whatever what's the number they have Vince? What's the amount five percent is it? What's the, how much do they have to take out a year? Uh it depends on your age, but the minimum is uh four, I think. Yeah. So it, that might help. Starting point. That might help, right? But you But know, it gets up to like twenty something by yeah. the time you get to the end. Um but if you're obviously if you're a young investor and you know you you're trying to compound and that's going to help you compound, you know it's not great for tax necessarily because you've got to figure out what the numbers are every year. It's, it's not perfect, but 
there's, there's benefits in that too. I mean, I, I would walk down the garden path. I mean, if you had a platform that did the tax records and you, you know, you just had um, either a Vanguard Diversified High Growth Fund on Superhero or Vanguard Diversified High Growth Fund on Vanguard itself, you want to just click and flick DRP, turn it on, get on with your life, knock yourself out. Yeah. I mean, the big plus is that out of sight, out of mind, that you tick the box, the cash doesn't turn up in your bank account, so you're not tempted to spend it. You've got to, when it comes to tax time, you've got to pay the tax bill, which gets buried in the rest of your tax return. Anyway, Sorry, so that, that's not done for you now, yeah. But to my mind, the biggest problem with DRP is if I went up, asked the average investor in, if we were in the corner at the Union Hotel. Mm, good nachos there. Eh? And had some nachos or a schnitty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said to you, Glenn, would you buy some CBA shares in five years' time or would you agree to buy them now and I'll tell you the price after you get them? Would you say yes to that question? No. Well, that's what you're doing when you sign up for DRP. Mm. So that and the... Well, but people would say, and it's probably a moot point now. Is that the word, moot? Mm-hmm. Um it's oh, it's through free brokerage. Well, that used to be a big deal. When brokerage, That's right. When brokerage was 1%, that was a big mm. deal. Um, and you used to generally get a discount. Mm. So CBA used to have a 15% discount, I think, at mm. one point. Um, but you're committing ahead of time to buy something at a price that you're only going to find out at the time. And that, to me, is uh, the opposite of what we should be doing. But if you've got a... a you know, a page scattered of different shares on a broker, not a platform, and they've all got DRP. I mean, if, unless you've got share site plugged in and the, the data is accurate, good luck at tax time. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's, 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 it's a brutal, I've done it on an Excel spreadsheet and it's, it's hard work. Mm. Um, and I've had to re- reconstruct these things from deceased estates where you might have 20 years of DRP and you've got to try and do this from all of the – at least you could usually find the paperwork in the attic somewhere. Mm. But to do this, if they've turned off receiving paperwork, I just can't imagine how you do that today. Yeah, uh, and, and, and this is and the, it's expensive to do. It is, and this is the problem with all this cycle competition in this space. They're not, they're not really driven to change that process either if you're these shares. So it's just what it is and we move on. And then you you hold your CBA in 20 years and you go, oh my God, what have I done? Um, and I think, yeah, Tim, basically in portfolio construction land, like as an example, the VDHG underlying ETFs, they wouldn't be auto-invested. The, the VAS in the VDHG portion would pay a distribution out and the fund would rebalance it. Correct. So we use that distribution as part of its rebalancing. So in the, in the portfolio construction world, you have a cash account, you have all your assets. Each quarter, each month, each year, when distributions are paid into the cash account, there's a quarterly rebalance and it just gets rebalanced and distributed. Yeah. I mean, it's so weird. People get such fierce and... I don't know, aggressive online talking about DRP, yes or no. I don't do it myself, but I actually don't give a crap if someone else does mm. because it's not my life to deal with. Like, I just worry about my own self. I, mean, I certainly won't do it myself mm. because I'm not committing ahead of time to buy this stuff. Mm. Um, but they're, particularly for younger investors where they're living pretty full lives mm. and 
if the money turns up at the bank account, they'll spend it. Mm. Whereas if it just gets reinvested, you out of sight, out of mind, you are actually compounding and you're going to find the money to pay the taxes out of your tax refund anyway. Yeah. So it works I mean, really well there and you don't have to think about reinvesting it. Mm. But you're, cre- you're creating a, an administrative problem which may or may not cause you a problem depending how long it runs and how good your records are. And you are agreeing to buy stuff at a price that you've got no idea whether you would make that decision at the time or not. But I mean, if you did have, for example, as I said before, one one-stop shop fund on a platform, DRP, knock yourself out. Yeah. As, long, was- as long as you're only going only ever going to sell all of it. If you start selling little bits of it... Yeah, but if it's actually on a platform, it's fine. But if it's a brokerage account, I'd probably... So if I had VDHG through Comsec or NabTrade or Perla, I would probably not do DRP. Mm -hmm. But if it was sitting on a platform like Vanguard itself or Superhero, and that's all I held, I would do DRP. But do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a question here, Anthony. Thoughts on interest rates for this year? Well, I'm not an economist, uh, but we know that inflation seems to have peaked at the end of last year. That's what the numbers would seem That's to suggest. What the, the numbers would seem to suggest. There was talk about another three rate rises at some point this year. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, rates are still below their average for the last 20 years. So, on balance, that says there's a greater risk that they go up than they go down. Mm. And we know that 0.1 at the RBA was not normal. Correct. Um, but, you know, the better... You know, we, I try not to make predictions. No. Um, what I try to do is to plan, you know, what would happen if they go up. Um what would I do if it went up? I try to protect against risks I can't manage. And I prepare for, you know, what am I going to do? So if I was a betting man, you've got to think that it's better than a coin flip that they're going to go up. Mm. How far they're going up is a much bigger question. Um, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me if we had a number beginning with four this time next year. Mm. Oh, it's, it's just... You know, we're sitting around a campfire. We don't have the ability to, like, where, where I say to people, if you're going to want to see who probably has a good read on rates is look at the bank economists because they get the credit card data so they know the spending. Now, that does, that does get aggregated and spent um, sent to the RBA. So they, they also get to see that as a spending. But that's going to, at this point where we are with inflation, that's going to say a lot. It's mm. going to say a huge amount. Um so it's look yes at this point as we sit here today the current expectations are probably for a, potentially a couple more they, that's the language that they've used but being an economist is it's just an impossibility those guys can't like it's so hard to predict anything further out than a couple of months mm-hmm. like it's just so hard so you know really what it comes down to is if you obviously if you've got a mortgage it's going to have a pretty heavy impact we've you know I'm sure you've talked at at ad nauseum about the, the potential cliff that's coming on fixed rates we won't we won't dive into that because there's nothing fun about that. Um, but yes, this comes back to your whole budgeting thing. It, that's what it, to exactly what you're saying, Vince. Like as, as long as you can understand and manage what that would look like, and the the, the ream of in the case of mortgages, mortgage calculators that are available to you to understand it, you can do that. But yeah, predicting rates is just so hard because, as we know, what they said, and you know, um, 
the governor right now is copying a lot of flack around his communication and, and the ability to communicate. And, but, you know, he came back a couple of years ago and said, we're not going to see rates rise until 2024. And that's significantly changed. So why are we trusting them to say mm. necessarily what's going to happen next? And he hasn't said anything anyway. But, but one of the biggest tools in the RBA's arsenal is um, what they call jawboning, that it's, it's what they say actually has a much bigger impact in many cases than what they they do. Where those two are completely inconsistent, then you get interesting. Well, and this is the problem why the fact that he's not talking to the public. Um, well, they reckon hard. the review of the RBA and the structure and whatnot that Jim Chalmers has commissioned or, mm. or whatnot, you know, overseas, the a lot of federal um, banks have monthly press conferences. And when you think about the decisions that that board makes, how it affects everyday Australians so much, mm. why don't they have the level of um, scrutiny that the public deserve? So yeah. that could be a recommendation as well, could be. like a uh, press yeah. conference. And I think it's easy to get carried away because rates have risen so quickly from such a low number. So a, a 3% increase in rates from 0.1 to 3.1 has a much bigger impact on people's home loan rates than an increase from 10 to 13. Yeah. Even though some... economically they could have similar impacts. Yeah. And we're still sitting here with negative real interest rates. You know, if you've got inflation at seven and interest rates at three, um, that looks awfully like 1983 when we had interest rates of – or inflation of 17 and interest of 13. Mm. Um, I know which one I'd prefer. Chris asks a question on this interest rates. How is the conversation around investing in shares versus paying off the mortgage faster changing now that interest rates are higher and seem to have uh, more to go? That's that's a really interesting question. We've um, this is something that we look at almost every day with with our members, and there is an article on our website which we've updated, but haven't actually published the updated version, which will be live in a week or two, but. Um, the economics now, so we've redone the numbers looking at um, using VDHG as the, or the managed fund equivalent as the benchmark, which has done eight point something since inception in 2002. And over that period, average home loan rates have averaged 5.6 something. And um, on that basis, the Invest or pay off your home loan is marginal. So the return on investment for a average tax rate, so the 34% tax rate, is it's marginally better, but to my mind doesn't reflect the, the additional risk. Um, but if you debt recycle, that is instead of taking the cash and investing directly in VDHD or, what, or whatever your poison of choice is, you repay the home loan and then redraw it in a new facility, so nothing changes apart from the bucket of debt. Um, that adds about 1.8% to the annual return for a mid-rate taxpayer, and that still looks attractive depending on your risk profile and where you are in terms of your home loan. Um, Higher-rate taxpayers um, doesn't look quite so good, yeah, right. but that rate cuts in at about up to 120 these days, so it covers off many of our listeners. Mm. But that goes to like, you know, for those who haven't got a mortgage yet, it speaks to your 
structure of setting up the mortgage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and why you should need pers- why you should take professional advice from a yeah, good mortgage broker. Um, you know, it, it, I, I just think like this is such a personal t- decision, and you know, if you are wanting to just pay down the mortgage because that's a goal of yours, well, don't let anyone say that's the wrong thing to do. That's right. Uh, because they're investing over here. So, you know, if in doubt, do a bit of both. Like I personally, um, I've just got my mortgage principal and interest and I invest. That's what I'm comfortable with. I think taking the investment lens, like this is where, if we break it all down, this is where, you know, these, this, the interest rates are potentially considered the risk-free rate. You know, what, what, what can you get? And this is where how, how things are priced on the discount, the discount rate side. So... There is a and to your what you were saying, Vince, but there's a whole argument around. This is why growth stocks got sold off last year, not because they had a lot of debt necessarily. It's because your capacity to get to invest, you know, in a government bond or whatever that may be. And there's a, I think there's some questions on bond ETFs around this, but um, government bond versus investing in a, in a risk asset, which is essentially an equity or something mm-hmm. like that. You, if you can get like in the US, you can get over four percent, and a bond. Well, I'll do that and not take that risk when I have to try to swing for the fences and try to buy. Well, you, this week ANZ just did a fifteen-year bond issue at five and five and a quarter. Mm. Like that's pretty close to risk-free. Yep. So that's right at the bottom of that. Uh, well, right, sorry, right at the top of those credit scales, uh, as you know. But um, so this is also how, when you think about that, that, that quasi of what you're paying off, which is a known. Um, towards what you're investing in. I'm not, and again, VAD, VDHC or whatever it is. I just use it as benchmark because I've got 20 years history. Yeah, but it's, it's somewhat an unknown, right? Mm-hmm. So, because, you you know, we all know the adage of, you know, history isn't going to tell you what's you know, coming for past performance is an indicative of future performance. So, there are situations when these markets are going to move and the, this change in rates is going to change a lot of how companies perform. Their ability to raise capital, um, what we've seen so, right now and in, in that whole sort of startup world, especially in the US, the VC world, it's much tougher. There's, like there's reports of some of these VC um, firms moving to the public markets, buying on buying shares because there's just not an opportunity at, at, at these current, you know, these current rates where they're pricing, where they're getting their money at to, to get the performance that they want. So it's, a, it's just, we're in, a, we're in also in a different ball game. And because of that, it's difficult to understand, going back exactly to your point, Glenn, maybe a VDHG is a simpler situ- you know, solution for many people because the game has somewhat changed compared to what we've seen in the last three to five years. Yeah, but I wasn't suggesting it as a no, no, as, no, a, no, as a recommendation, merely as a useful benchmark. Mm. No, and I, I don't think I, no, I was certainly wasn't. Yeah. Um, I was just saying like it's the, the times have changed in terms of how potentially for many of your listeners how the investing landscape has shifted mm. is so significant. I don't think it's as well like it's well articulated how significant it's shifted. Actually, question for Vince: When you crunch those numbers, you're obviously using ordinary money. The, well, the, we actually look at what would happen if you invested in super yeah, instead. Yeah, well, that's what I was Which, say, of course, like, looks a lot better. That's right, but the trade-off is the money's locked yeah, up. Yeah. yeah. So, so we always look at those three things. You go, well, if I've got some spare money, there are three things I can do with it. Mm. Well, four, because you could spend it. But assuming you're not going to spend it, there are three things you can do. You can pay off your home loan or some other form of debt. Yeah. You can invest it or you can stick it in super. And sticking in super will under almost any conceivable set of assumptions give you a better lifetime return, but at some significant cost to flexibility and access. And Mm. for many younger people, that's not a good trade-off. I think the only, I would probably say, 
if those are wondering, should I put more money in super? I would say first, if you are going to, maybe just as a start to cover the insurance premium as a South Sack. Mm-hmm. Just if you're going to do any, because you know, you've at least covered some costs or work out what you want to do with your living situation. If it is save up to buy a house or an apartment to live in, get that big rock done first. Yep. Then once you're established there, you've kind of quote unquote locked in your accommodation costs. Yep. You're not at the whim of um, rental markets. Then you can swing back around and start to pump super. Yep. That's what I'd probably say in terms of, you know, those rocks in your life first. Yeah. And this is another one of those examples of the numbers aren't the whole story. Mm. Um, you know, if you look at, and we've just republished our rent or buy article looking at what it looks like in the new interest rate environment and over your lifetime, um, if you don't move, then renting, so buying will look better than renting. If you move three times in your, you know, from being a first-time buyer at 36 to death at 80 or 90, um, it actually looks a lot more marginal mm. that those three moves can whittle away most of that benefit. Is that, if, is that because of stamp duty or is that or other, buy, other... Buy and sell costs. Yeah, just um, transaction costs of that stuff. Yeah, And um, the challenge though is that those who take the rent option need the discipline to actually save the difference. And that's where the numbers fall down. That, mm. you know, we, we can do a 50-year model here, um, but, but, that's, the but st- that's not how people behave. But that's the struggle in a lot of um, cities at the moment. The rent costs, there. well, might be slightly different now that interest rates are increasing, but it was a lot of the time, well, the rent I'm paying can serve as a mortgage. I just can't save the deposit. Yeah, and that's largely because if you look at rental yields over the past 20-odd years, or certainly since the mid-90s as interest rates started to move down, the rental yields fell with it. So if you go back you know, pre-95, typical rental yields were five. Mm. Over the last 20-odd years, they've dropped to three and interestingly have started to turn back up again. Um, and of course, the challenge is, well, are they going to turn back up again because property prices fall? Or because rents go up, and you know, which side of that equation you want to be is mm. uh, a thing. But of course, buying a home is more about hedging your accommodation costs as it is about investing, because you can't really pull the money out because mm. you've got to live somewhere. Oh, that's that's my always. You know, again, I'm, I'm a markets guy. Like you can't sell the kitchen. You, no. it's, it's, you're all in. Like you're all in, and it's a large amount of capital to allocate uh, and continue to allocate for a long. Are you time. a homeowner yourself? Yes, with a reasonably sizable, chunky mortgage. Yeah. No, I live in Sydney, so yeah. what choice do you have? Yeah, that's um, right. But like, I got, I got a young family. Yeah, and this is the this is the problem, isn't it, with this mentality of what what, do we, what does it look like? You know, in these rates environment, when let's let's just say let's just say and this is thankfully not the case. I'm, I'm I'm reasonably lucky, but we had to sell. We're under mortgage stress, and then you wanted to rent. It doesn't have to be equivalent, you know, equivalent, but something you're paying the same amount. Essentially, so you're not in any better situation. In the, so, I, f- I do feel in this situation where these potentially these fixed rates roll off, or whatever, the, you know, whatever, whatever occurs, you know, with this purported thing happening with with you know rates moving much higher for those people on fixed, you know, I, is, is selling their property going to solve a problem for them other than to give them some some capital? Well, as long as you can cover the debt, um, it will certainly improve your cash flow because rentals, you know, rental yields are still in the threes in Sydney. So your monthly cash flow will be 
smaller. Yeah. But, yeah, it's cost you a lot of money to fix that problem because you're going to pay an estate agent two and a bit percent to sell it, then you're going to have to buy some ads, another five or ten grand. You're probably going to have to put some paint on the front door. Um, so you're up for four or five percent. And then, of course, it's going to cost you another four or five percent stamp duty on the way back in again. So it's it's a non-trivial decision it's to make. Hard. It's really hard. So people are obviously going to try to solve that problem by any not any possible way they can. Mm. Right, rice and beans yep. looks a lot better than $120,000 in stamp duty. For sure. Yeah, it's so wild, isn't it? Like, I was in a... I've been into YouTube lately, and I don't know, maybe I'm have, bored. Have you paid the $14.99 for the premium? Yeah, I pay for the premium. I must admit, that is one of the best $14 oh, I spend absolutely. every month. Absolutely. But, like, I was, I was going down this rabbit hole of just, like, oh, I watched this documentary on hyenas, and then I wanted to watch <laughs> a documentary on... Um, oh, some, oh, and then I'm watching this, um, Netflix one called Our Universe with Morgan Freeman, um, narrating it. It's a new documentary. Anyway, they did one on, um, the water in Botswana and all that. And then I was like, oh, YouTube, I want to learn more about Botswana. So I'm watching a, a documentary on Botswana. And then I'm like, let's, what's, what do documentaries say about Australia? So then, you know, watch the thing about Australia and, Australia, in terms of world standard, in terms of financially, we are up there, you know, like... We have the second wealthiest households in the world. Yes. Like, we are, like, in terms of um, healthcare, education, like, top 10 in the world, um, a unique country that uh, 90% of us live on 3% of the land mass, like, hugely concentrated cities, all this stuff, all to say that... It's a really great place looking in. Like, we've got our problems. Australia or YouTube? Yeah, both. <laughs> but, like, it's fascinating to see that data against all these other countries that we're in the top of GDP and all that. But say that to someone who's 25 working full-time near a capital city, I feel like I can't get ahead. Like, there is just such a mismatch. Yeah, I mean, it's like... What's that boiling frog thing? That yeah. It's, it's pretty hard to see that the water's boiling around you the, when but, it's gradually. Because, but, you know, we, you know, whilst we do have relative wealth inequality, mm. we actually have reasonably good income equality. Mm. Uh, when you look at the tax and transfer system, we have a relatively good health system. We have relatively clean air. We have relatively stable government. We have pretty good low crime rates, and yet many people perceive it as being a unfriendly, scary place to live. But tell that to the person who can't get a rental property, you know, tell that to the person who's, you know, spent $400 at the groceries just then when, uh, you know, six months ago it was $300. Like, I, I just think it's fascinating that looking in, it's so good, quote unquote, but on the ground, it's struggle street for a lot of people. You know, for me, it's all it's just context. It just again, like you know, we're obviously all most most people are reasonably privileged to travel. We live on an island. We want to go, mm. so we we go overseas. I was in San Fran probably, oh, what's it, probably four or five years ago. Um, like that's the context that hits you. Like mm. the, the homelessness. They have, they have a huge homelessness. That's problem. a problem. It's yeah. a huge problem. Um, and that's one of the richest cities in the world. Mm. Mm. So, you know, in terms of obviously VC, in terms of the house prices, et cetera. So, you've, you know, this is, I, I'm not saying these people in Australia who are under these, under these pressures, it's, it's very real for them. Mm. It's very real, you know, you, you earn good money, so you can't get ahead. 
but that, that's the context. The context is if, you know, in a situation like that, you're in a much, you're a much harder place, but you know, you're not seeing it at your front door. Um, so I, like, I, yeah, I, it's not, it's not easy for young people. I, you know, I said I'm 40. Um, it's, it's easier for me than it is someone who's 30 and it's easier probably, you know, in terms of the, what situation we're in now. Mm. And it was for probably my parents as well. So not, not, not saying that it's not hard, but um, again, the context is that there's a lot of place out there that's much harder. Bigger picture with Australia and, you know, we haven't done it well, you know, with the accommodation crisis and all that because we all live basically on the East Coast, most of us. Um, like this documentary was saying, yeah, the problem is because, you know, 90% live in 3% of the thing, you know, property squeeze, prices go up, blah, blah, blah. Like I'm still fascinated that governments haven't put a huge mandate on regional centres. And I mean huge mandate like, and then East Chicken or the egg, like infrastructure to like, you know, you got your Tamworth, Orange, Bath, mm-hmm. even in New South Wales, those regional centres, like your Geelong, like do tax incentives at a federal level. Like if you live in a regional centre for at least two years, there's a slightly different tax rate. And then if you move away, you got to, you know, clawed back if you try and game the system. I don't know, like just I mean, some already, type we of- We already do have a, um, a regional tax offset, but you got to be really regional. Like you live in the Pilbara. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, I don't know, it just, it's just, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what I'm saying, but we've got a lot of good land that people live on and, you know, standard of living in regional centres can be fantastic, but it goes back to that personal thing like, well, would I want to live in a regional centre? Well, no, but if there was an incentive, maybe I reset my life out there. Mm. I don't know. And if, if any time it's going to happen, it's now with the unemployment rate being at the absolute bottom it's ever mm. going to be because... I think that, that was the way I was, when you were speaking, it's like, well, you know, I work in finance. You really can't live. It's very, well, it's very hard to live, even in the day and age of working from home, away from or somewhere in the vicinity of towards the CBD. Yeah. And really, unfortunately, it's the CBD here and in Melbourne. Mm. You, know, you can, Brisbane's not, you know, obviously, Brisbane actually is really nice now, but, you know, it's, hard, it's harder. Um, so what, what does that do? It just, it just centres people around this little circle and everyone wants to get closer because they don't have to, have to travel. The traffic's terrible. All these sort of problems that you get. Um, so, I, look, I, I totally agree. I'd love to live up the North Coast somewhere. It would be amazing. But, you know, some people are just, to your point, stuck and they want to live on the, on the, on the circuit. Mm. We'll, we'll wrap it up shortly, but there's a question here from Jade and it's a bit random, but we'll go there. We'll go there. Mature age apprenticeship. I'm 41 and want to look at an electrical apprenticeship. I'm fortunate to work offshore on an oil rig for 130 uh, at the moment, which is casual, not full-time employment being offered in catering and cleaning. But I've been in hospitality, coffee and um, that industry for 20 years. I need a career refresh to be stimulated again before I get burnt out and feel like a trade would benefit my want to learn something new and keep employed for the long term. Any advice or words of wisdom or general chit chat? Yeah, isn't isn't there a book you could buy? Oh, what's that called? Sort your career out. Sort your career out and make more money. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was just a, a, a gratuitous plug for Glenn's book. But um, to answer Jade's question, um, it's never too late to learn more. Um, the question is, what matters more to you than um, one hundred thirty grand a year? Um, 
Obviously, I mean, it's a bigger problem if you built your life and you're running on the line on one thirty. Yeah. So how flexible, uh, you know, if you want to go back to the city and do a four-year apprenticeship on, I don't know what a first-year electrical apprentice is. This, it's mature age. But it's probably not very much. I'm going to uh, Google that while you have a chat. Um, and, you know, do you have a partner? Um, how does that all work for the rest of the family? Um and whether you can continue to work FIFO mm. on, on a, a rig or a platform, whatever it is, um, that's the that's the challenge here. Um, certainly, there are lots of forty somethings change careers. I mean, it's it's looking I mean, loosely I mean, for up to eighty five grand for a mature age apprentice for a first year apprentice. Well, surely, surely not. What said sixty five to eighty five um, annual. Average salary ranges from 65 to 85 for mature age apprentice jobs in Sydney. Wow. Apprentice electrician seeking mature age, second, third, fourth year apprentices. That's in Sydney. Yeah, I, I mean... Well, it's still half of 130. Exactly. So if you're spending 130 and you're saving all that money by being away half the time, um, yeah, can you adjust to that? But certainly 41 is not too late. Mm. Lots of people have mid-career changes. And um, I must say, I've seen a lot about people feeling burnt out. Have you noticed that in the group, that it, it seems to be a bit of a, a theme, whether, yeah. whether it's a post-COVID, hang, post-COVID hangover or um, a generational thing or yeah. a consequence of the low unemployment rate that people feel comfortable that... I mean, what leads... To, burnout leads to, if you are burned out... You've been foot to the floor for a prolonged period of time, basically being overworked. Probably, if you're not paid that well, that would exacerbate the situation because you're not feeling that, well, at least I'm getting paid bloody well for this. Um, But I think, yeah, burnout, it's real for a lot of people. And I don't know if there is that social thing um, where people are just saying it. You know, where people go, oh, I'm having a mental health day, lol, photograph legs <laughs> on the beach. Like, no, no, you just wanted the day off. Like, I don't know if there is that social contagion part, but I think, yeah, genuine burnout is you've been literally burning the candle at both ends for a prolonged period of time and the wheels have fallen off and you need a reset. And we know if you are in that situation, like what I said, if you paid well, it might soften the blow, but at some point, all the money in the world isn't going to fix the situation of being burned out if you're, you know, going hard at it. I, I think it just comes back to transferable skills, doesn't it, a lot of the time. It, like, if, you know, Jade's, Jade. Jade, 41, I'm 40, so we're in the same world. You know, could I go do something completely different? I think there's a level of transferable skill that I could take there, um, but it's not, not, it's not, unequivocally exactly the same. But I just think to your point around the, the unemployment rate, so we're so low, the incentives that, that everyone's trying to offer to get people to come to work with them because it's hard to find people are, are pretty positive, you know, in terms of to, you know, mental health days. They didn't exist 10 years ago. They did. We just called them sickies. Oh, right. Yeah. So they existed. People just didn't take it in a different way. Well, probably mental health as a as a as a concept probably didn't exist much 10 years ago and it's good that it's back, uh, you know, as, as, you know, heightened up. But I, I think it's difficult because you're right, it's, it's the spending capacity that you get used to. There's this really, it was an really interesting thing, obviously, in the US, there's everyone's getting 
especially in the tech, are getting laid off. And one of the concepts was in, in a couple of these companies that they're cutting the pay of some of the big executives. And there's this studies from years ago about, you know, who, would, would someone rather their pay get cut by 10% or, or get, you know, get fired? And they prefer to get fired because they're so, it's so hard to re-anchor yourself mm. to a different pay doing the same job. So I think that's, that's always difficult. You know, mm. if you, you have to reinvent yourself, you have to go do something else because if, if you know, in the case of Jade went and got paid doing the same job, you know, hundred grand, it's very hard to reorient yourself back to that mental capacity. Say, I'm doing the same thing, I'm only getting paid, you know, I'm getting paid way less. Yeah, I, I think it goes back to, you know, we've answered this question a few times in recent months and that's why, you know, part of doing the career thing was to, because we just keep seeing this thing come up. But I think, like, I've got a friend in the States, he's just moved and started a, um, a plumbing apprenticeship and he's about to turn 40 next month. And it's like, good on you. Like, we know that 40 is not old anymore. Yeah. Like, it's... Um, I would say, good on you. The only thing you've got to do is actually get your ducks in a row. So you need to make sure you don't have consumer debt. You need to make sure your cash flow is lean and agile because in a lot of times there will be a temporary pay cut. So how do you hedge that? It's no different than someone going on maternity leave. There's a period of time where there's a hole that needs to be filled in terms of income. So do we work harder and save up to fill that hole so we keep the status quo for those months or years or do we reset our spending in our household budget to to do that? And I think it's probably also worth seeing if a short break changes your outlook. Mm. That sometimes yeah, three months or six weeks on a beach or wherever gives you a whole new focus on what you're doing. We see this a lot with 30-something lawyers who've graduated and had these constant step-ups in pay mm. for a decade. And then they go, actually, maybe I don't actually really want to be a lawyer anymore. Mm. Oh, but actually, I really need this paycheck because I'm spending it and more. Mm. So what do you do? That's the challenge. I mean, the only other thing for someone like Jade, you know, he's doing catering and cleaning on the, the rigs. There is a lot of money in cleaning businesses, particularly like in their commercial sense, like start a business, you know, I would rather a shorter term hit with that salary with a higher upside, you know, having your own business. Like if you're, if you're going to press pause and, you know, to your um, comment of the career break, I mean, he's probably just over FIFOing to an oil rig as well because that's a reality that, you know. Um, but yeah, all I would say is go for it, grab a copy of the career book. We really start that book with... Um, working out your values, like what are your actual values? And Jade's values might be, well, don't want to be away from home anymore. Okay, well, let's... Or I actually do like or home. I, 30 grand a year. <laughs> yeah, or I do like the money. Um, or I do like being away. Or I know sometimes on those rigs, and, uh, and it's probably, it really probably depends, but sometimes in some of that FIFO stuff, there can be some downtime. Like you might be up there for six weeks at a time, but you are still getting a few days a week break. How do you maximize that downtime rather than sitting there, I don't know, do you fish off them or <laughs> I don't know, maximize that. But yeah, I'm treading water. Let's ask a final couple of questions. Melanie said, may you please talk top three mistakes you saw punters make when you all did financial planning and maybe as a bonus, top three lesser known tips. So over your career, Blair, 
and even, you know, the work that you're doing with Global X and all that, do you see any, I don't know, mistakes that people make or even in your own friendship circles, your own life experience when it comes to managing money and or investing? Yeah, I think harking back to my days um, sitting behind a desk and, and yeah, putting putting trades on probably is going to be more helpful in this case. Oh, and look, Vince, you've got more experience than me, mate. I know we've got both the grey hair. You. You've got more grey hair than me. <laughs> no, well, yeah, it's true. We've, the the greys are, are um, preeminent here. But can um, I think for me in this, it, and there's a really good book, and I'm sure many of you, you guys read it, um, by Daniel Carnegie called Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm. It all talks about the, basically the, the biases, right? So this is this is just so inherently when it's your own money, the biases just just stack up and crank up so heavily in terms of how you think about your investing. Think like the basic ones, like the overconfidence bias. I've just read this thing, and now that is the thing that's going to happen for sure. You know, we go talk about decarbonisation. Like things can that could change. Like that's not it's not that's not one hundred percent going to happen. Like it seems like it is at this point in time. This is the problem with forecasting. So when you start reading the same thing over and over and over, and all you didn't go do is find the same thing that you've read before, but in a different way, well, your confidence keeps building. So you, then you can't you can't see any other angle. Mm. I think that's one of them. I think the other one we'll keep with the biases is um, I used to say this to when I had my clients um, back in the days around a thing called anchoring, and you guys mm. would know this quite well, but if you bought a, an ETF or a share at a dollar, that, has n- that doesn't mean anything to anyone other than the tax man because if it goes for $1.20 or it goes to $0.80, cents, it's of no consequence. What is it, but the question is what is it worth now, not, not what you bought it for. Um, I think people struggle with that. So, it's so hard. Um, because it's the figure that you bought it for is plastered usually right next to it on your on your mm-hmm. share yeah, platform. Right. So Green just, or red, you just yeah. cannot get away from that. It's very hard to get away from it. Now, I'm not saying there is reasons why you wouldn't want to. Again, the taxation reasons. I won't go into tax necessarily, but it just makes it very difficult to to, to keep gravitating towards that number. And then the last one, um, sick in that same world, is this thing. And we do this see this a lot of it in the ETF world because you, because it, ETF flows are essentially a lagging indicator because of a thing called recency bias. In other words, what happens just now is going to continue to happen for, you know, the next, for the future. So what you see is in, and talking about factors before Vince, in the in the in that parlance is momentum. Mm. So once once momentum gets going, people just want to jump on that bandwagon. But that's the, when I was speaking to, I don't want to rebalance this because this has been going so good. Exactly. It's exactly what it is. So this recency bias kicks in and you're like, well, and this is the lagging indicator. So the flow starts. To, so so some, oh, I can't buy that ETF right now. It's that was down twenty percent last year. It's up. It's up twenty percent in the first quarter. I should get that one now. That's right. Like, or I go to the list of the top ten performing ETFs or stocks of last year. Oh, yeah. Look, the most criminal question you can ask an ETF person is, "What's the be- what's your best ETF?" There's no answer to that. Right. So or, it's like, who's your who's your favourite child? Yeah. <laughs> so, and the same thing for what's the most popular ETF. It's they're just they're not. There's no there's no answers for these things. So I think, and this is the going back to the point I made earlier around the, the value of financial advice. Those biases get ripped out from under you because you've got someone else helping you manage that mm-hmm. money. Um, and I know it's vastly unattainable for many of the Australian. You know, we won't go into the the problems with financial advice necessarily and that. But I think. Um, there is, there is value because it takes away those bias. It's very, it's very hard. And I know what they are. It still happens to me. Mm-hmm. Like I do it all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm in the same boat. Like it's just, it's nearly impossible to do it. So mm-hmm. that's, that's why 
outsourcing that some of that to VDHD. I mean, I use a financial advisor for that very reason. Exactly. And, and VDHD, and again, I'm not, I, you know, I've got no affiliation with Vanguard whatsoever, technically a competitor, but I think that, is, again, is outsourcing the decision and taking some of those biases away. Mm. So I think that for me, that's for me. I, that's yeah. what I remember. I mean, your point about overconfidence is a, a really good one, especially today because we've just come off possibly the longest bull market in history that anyone who's been investing for the last decade has never really seen a sustained downturn. I mean, we had a little bit of a dip during COVID. It was a very deep dip, but it recovered within three months, four months. So it's easy to think that you're, you've got golden hands because you've just been through this easy money period where sort of everything went up. But that's, you know, all the crypto people thought they were geniuses. Yeah. Until they weren't. Everyone's oh. a genius when they're winning. The Dave Portnoy video from the, I don't know if you know this guy. He owns yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Barstool Sports. Yeah. That video when you know that's taken from his early time when he was investing, just sort of post COVID when everything was rallying, saying this is easy. He there's one bit he reached into a Scrabble bag, pulled out three letters, and I'm buying this stock. This is going to go up for sure. And then the video just transitions over time to him losing all his money. Yeah, um, it's brilliant because that's exactly what it you is. You see the geometry of wealth, man. That no, he owns Barstool Sports. Oh, different point. Yeah. He's just provocative for the sake of being provocative. Yeah. But, um, but the point is, yes, historically you've had, we've had a really good run and that's the recency bias kicking in. Yeah. We're going to go back to that. It's going to happen again. Get ready. It's, mm. So um, anyway, you guys have also been in this game for a while. So, I mean, two of the biggest mistakes. I mean, I, this is a bit of an internet thing where people say, 10 mistakes not to make when you're buying a house. Like, why not just focus on 10 good things you could do when you're buying a house? But Sphere sells vents. It does. Listicles are the greatest thing that, um, that came from the internet. And it, positives, don't, destroyed, positives don't get destroyed clicks. destroyed journalism. But setting that aside, the two biggest mistakes that I see are buying too much house and too much car. Mm. That, you know, if you think about the decisions that really, really matter, how much house you buy and um, how much car you buy, will explain about 40% of your lifetime spending. So get those two right and you don't have to worry about... Well, an old um, an old book, The Millionaire Next Door, you know, mm-hmm. you move into a suburb that's a premium suburb, guess what? You're going to be spending more on the house and you're going to be spending more on all the other crap, whether it's the extracurricular polo that you wouldn't be doing if you didn't live in that suburb, like... Yeah, because we start to live like our neighbours. Yeah. So not only is it about the bricks and mortar and uh, the mentality that goes with it, you know, we've... 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, by the biggest house you can possibly afford was great advice, mm. in hindsight, where there was great advice with 70% interest rates is another question. But in hindsight, great advice. Today, um, it's not going to look so good. So we need to stop thinking about our homes, as opposed to real estate generally, as consumption rather than as an investment. And um, you know, where you buy, it's just important. Because I can tell you that a litre of V-Power is a lot more expensive in Mossman than it is in Penrith. Do you guys reckon Shell's really expensive? I don't, I don't fuel up at Shell at all. No. I, I mean, I will buy Shell or BP yeah. as a preference. But you look at the prices of v-power versus ultimate the premium shell it's and i want to buy shell because i'm a ford guy you know dick johnson racing shout out what up all that like but i can't do it because it's a bloody rip off anyway no i I, i'm not sure i'd agree with that locally Mm. now maybe that's a function of the lower north shore um but i don't see a bp shell price difference really what you do see 
when Premium Athletic came out in the early 1982, and you were early, a young early chap. 90s. <laughs> I think I remember it. it there, <laughs> there was a three to five cent difference between pulp and ULP. There's now like a 25 cent difference. Mm. And of course, Australians are obsessed about petrol prices. Yeah. For, the, for a country with some of the cheapest fuel in the world, how dare you say um, that? Australians are just obsessed with the price of fuel. You think fuel's expensive here? Go to New Zealand. Exactly. Go to Europe. Yeah. Um, but setting aside, so. Just to wait on that, you know, Dev, who hosts the My Millennial yep. Money Professional podcast. He, he of the Tesla. He, I always say to him, How's your coal powered car going? <laughs> 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 Am I wrong? <laughs> well, in Victoria, he's in Victoria. Yeah. He's definitely, definitely right in Victoria. Mm. Um, so they're, they're two big ones. Um, you hit on the, Blair, you hit on the overconfidence bit. Um, and that's probably number three. And then number four is the thinking that investment is about choosing the right stock. Mm. Um, it's all about. Well, number one is actually doing it. So actually setting some money aside. So if your first 10 years of investing and what you put in is going to make a much bigger difference to the ending pile than whether you buy a VTHD or a DHHF. And How dare you say that? Shouldn't I get the well, cheapest brokerage and the lowest fees? I mean, I had this discussion in the group uh, during the week um, that you know, the argument was, well, should I... Um, I'm looking at buying 50%, I think it was 50% VGS, 50% VAS. Mm. Um, should I buy it on Perler or on Vanguard? Now, you're asking the wrong question. Mm. The bigger question is, well, is 50% VAS, 50% VGS the right answer? Mm. Whether you pay $7 for brokerage or $5 for brokerage. Or nothing. Or nothing. Mm. Really? Yeah, because this is the whole basis point thing, isn't it? Because, you know, at four basis points for IVV, it's $4 for every 10000 So if VTS is $3, is that, is that going to change the, change your outcome? Well, it depends who you ask <laughs> because there are some zealots out there who... Um, I suspect that the buy-sell spread will be, uh, will be different. I think it'd be... Well, yeah, so your total cost of ownership of an ETF in that world would be something... It'd be close for those two funds, I would, I would suspect. I don't, and I don't, I don't know. Um, but again, you think about it from a forty basis point or zero point four percent fund. That's forty dollars for every ten grand. Like it's not that isn't going to change. Yeah. Are we the having these conversations? Exactly. <laughs> so, if you're paying one and a half percent, that's maybe a different thing over a long time. But not not at the at the sm smaller end of the scale. Mm. I just don't think it matters. Yeah. And then the final, well, my fifth, I think it's the fifth. You had three. I don't know. Week. I didn't. Yeah. yeah. No, we got overconfident. Anyway, um, you're being overconfident with your, with your with your ability to, to say how good your your points are. Anyway, focusing on the right things. Yeah. Four and five is um, now you've just now you've confused me, guys. You uh, have a think, and I'll start. Yeah. So, when I was a financial advisor. Probably the number one thing that I saw, which helped me develop the sound financial house, people doing stuff in their life in the wrong order and not being very clear and strategic about what they want to do. An example could be, oh, I'm going to buy an investment property. Run out and buy an investment property in your early 20s. The amount of people I knew who bought an investment property in their early 20s 
and it was sold within the next five years because they bought the wrong property, wrong location, situation changed, it wasn't strategic, it was in the suburb next door. It was just like, oh no, we're getting married now, I've got to buy our own house. Like just the strategy in building your life from the ground up. And that's why we always talk about once more for for Glenny Boy and the dummies like me, have a cash flow system, be consumer debt free, have emergency funds, get your insurance sorted, have your will and estate plan done. Those fundamental foundations in your life, go from there. Once you've got those foundations in place, have an agile cash flow, have a lean budget, you know, you'll you'll be surprised with what can happen and be strategic. So that was like the number one thing. People would just run out and invest. And even, you know, we see it today, like people jump in, oh, I my spaceship's down 35%. I should sell it. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We only invest when we don't need to touch the money for at least five years. So that's a thing as well, like people committing money to investments when they actually need that money in their life today. So when I do my own spending plan and budget, I basically do a bottom-up budget. I work out all my expenses of what it costs me to live so I know how much it costs me to exist. Then the difference between my income and my expenses is what I can theoretically put away for future goals, save up, buy a new lounge, save up for a holiday and save or put money aside for the future. So yeah, a couple of things there, not having clear goals and not setting up, you know, I always say have a strategy, however small, have some intention. The next thing that I saw people make was, and you know, I'm a personal finance guy, but in your day-to-day budget- Are you a finance expert? Maybe. In your day-to-day budget, automate remove you from the process, set up multiple accounts, have a system within that, have an automatic investment, like automate, remove you from the process and you'll be surprised with but what don't happens. automate bad habits. Yep. And then the other thing was probably more because I'm a bit younger than Vincent, um, over my time so far, I've seen people with too much car. Um, people just, you know, you know, I know. Some people have white Lexuses. My white Lexus, it's good, I'll have you know. And it's not even expensive. Like someone said to me the other day, oh, I said, oh, I want that, you know, the X6 BMWs. Like I'm like, oh, I'd love one of them. They're like 200 grand. They're like, buy it, go on. I'm like, there's no way on the planet I'm spending $200,000 on a car. Like I just can't bring myself to do it. But, and, but that's why for me and Blair, Vince and I always have this discussion about cars um, I don't buy cars with car loans anymore. I just save up, buy it, because if I don't have the money, I can't afford it. Where Vince will be like, get a car loan. Now, there is a caveat there. There is a big caveat there. Now, Vincent, he keeps his car. He's probably had three cars in his whole life. Five. Five. There you go. So, sure, if you buy a brand new car, get a car loan for four years or whatever, and you're keeping it, do whatever you want. But in this day and age... We chop and change crap because we're, everything's consumable and you'll end up refinancing negative equity into the next car and so all this car stuff yeah. can cause big can. trouble. So you have to get a car loan. That's awesome, but have it less than four years, I reckon. But it's the buying too much car that's the problem. That's right, the underlying you, thing. Rather and, than how you pay for it. Yeah, and for me, to stop me buying too much car, I've got to hack my own personality. Mm. I make sure I've got the actual physical money because that slows me down. And, you know, I could go and buy a $200,000 BMW tomorrow, 
and have it alone and I wouldn't even notice it. It Would sounds it very joy. Well, it sounds privileged and I am privileged, but I cannot stomach transferring $200,000 to a car dealership. I can't do it. And so, and I guess within that, with the, um, the lessons, you've got to totally know your personal situation as in who you are as a person. So I'm a spender by nature. I've had to put a rule in my life. I like cars. I like all this stuff. I do not use debt because it's easy to afford a few hundred dollars a week for a nice car. But if I can't write that big amount of money and stomach moving that much money over, I'm keeping my $36,000 car. But isn't that the problem with the car, the cars though? Because that car, it's got diminishing, it's obviously diminishing price and diminishing utility. So like you love it now, love it, mm. but it's not new next year yeah. and it's not new in five years. And you're like, I need to do this again mm. to get that, to bump my utility back up and get the same amount of dopamine that I was getting before. Yeah. Like it's, it's, they're a, it's a hard space. I'm not a car guy. Yeah. It's a hard space. Well, last week on the podcast, I talked with a psychologist and we talked about gambling and addiction and dopamine stuff. And I've learned in my life, I can actually scratch the itch with maybe a secondhand car. Because like, it's the same outcome of dopamine itch being scratched. Yeah. And that's part of why actually debt funding your car is a good thing because it actually aligns the dopamine hit. So if you, the most of the dopamine comes when it's new and you get that beautiful mm, toxic new car smell, all those volatile organic compounds. You're getting me excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so you go out and write a check for 80 grand and you drive home this brand spanking new, you know, nice three-pointed star on the front and um, it feels great. So you've now aligned the pain of paying with the pleasure of purchasing. But if you pay, if you have a car loan, your cash flow reflects the depreciation every month. So that every month you write a check. For the lost money. For the lost money. So that you are, that depreciation is right in front of your nose and you're still driving this car in three years' time. When it's not new, it doesn't smell like that. And you're not quite getting so much joy from it, but you're still paying for it every month. That's part of, that's aligning the dopamine with the pain. But, but that's my logic to pay cash, saves up, it slows you down hmm. because in three years when you need that dopamine hit, you're not having, you're not rolling negative equity into sure. the next yep. deal. Yep. And it does come down to See, okay, not buying too this much This is gun. an interesting thing. I would probably say, and I, I've put a bit of a... Um, a framework around if you want a car loan. I say put 20% into the car. So you've got to save up and cost you because that will help slow you down. 20% in, no more than a four-year loan term and no more than um, 1% of your household income per month. So as an example, if you earned 80 grand and you're a single person, make sure your car payment is not more than $800 a month. That's so, a big car payment. It is. But you're not you're probably not going to get that car payment on a four-year term putting 20% in. You see what I mean? Like so Yeah. So again, that's just a good example of why it's called personal finance. Yeah. But I, I probably would go back to like for someone who's not you guys aren't car people, right? Self-confessed, you know. Get a loan, four years, buy brand new, get a seven-year warranty car, like why not if you're not flipping them every 10 minutes, yeah. but for someone who's a car person like me, loves getting new cars all the time, it's just going to cost me money doing it with debt. Yeah. 
I mean, I just go, what What, what do I want $80,000 more than the one I've got? And I really just can't get my head around that. Mm. But um, that does remind me that the final point I was yes, about to make, we got there. that believing that if someone's good, more must be better. Mm. And I see this all the time, particularly in, in on on the internet, where um, you know, investing in real estate is probably good for most people, assuming you can afford it. Um, but that doesn't mean investing in more real estate is better, that diversification is important. And we're seeing this with, you know, back to your overconfidence point, that the cult of equities where people believe that, you know, because equities return more than bonds, therefore 100% zero is the answer because that will outperform 90-10 or 80-20, um, which it is expected to, but, you know, we've come off a period, 2022 aside, where um, equities have been in the ascendancy because money's been cheap mm. and it's easy to get carried away. One of the other top mistakes that I thought, I w- like I've looked, and I, even for my own life, it's like if you think you know it all and you've arrived, you're in danger. That's right. Which goes back to overconfidence. Yeah, because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, all you need to do is look at Reddit, look at some other Facebook groups, all these people that are categorically so sure, I don't need any advice, it's that only, it's this, and, you know, it's just, I think it's dangerous because you're the pro tennis player who doesn't need a coach. You're the pro swimmer who doesn't need a coach. And how many pro athletes don't have a coach? Next to none. I mean, Kyrgios didn't for five minutes there, but like, that's extreme outlier. Even investing, right? Mm. I don't pretend that I know it all. It's like, you, you got to look to these other people that, you know, I'm above some one of them, but like, I really like a guy named Howard Marks. You know, he mm. runs Oak Tree, right? Yep. Because he speaks in a way that's understandable, digestible, and it's something that you can look towards and you go, okay, I can form my view based out of something like that, someone he would say. So he's not, he's not a coach necessarily, but... So, and and the point around the overconfidence to your going back to that, Vince, is That's your point, Blair. <laughs> it is my point, but you've you've used it better than I have. Um, is that you've got to have those wide variety of views. So go and find someone who is anti what Howard Marks is saying and get a view. To make, don't don't just go and read all the things that you know, he's right, I'm going to get in that path. So I think that's, you know, on the, let's go back to like decarbonisation. Go and find the ones that say, no, this is actually not going to happen. We're going to go back to coal. We're going to figure out a way. Like, you know, yeah. th- so just get get both sides of the story. And back to, uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of Howard Marks and his writing. He has a newsletter which you can subscribe for, which is- yeah, it's free. It's awesome. It's worth the price and more. Um, but what, as a professional investor, or so what's good for a professional investor- isn't necessarily good for you. So if you listen to Rafe Arndt at the, or whoever his successor is called, at the Future Fund, um, their investment mandate and outcomes are different to yours. So their investments are going to be entirely different. They're also looking at it day in, day out. So yeah, Exactly. You can't even invest in half the things they're yeah. doing. So what's good for Warren Buffett is not necessarily good for you. Exactly. Mm. Uh, we will finish up just... I'll, I'll, I want to ask two last questions and we'll let you go, Blair. Um, the first one is Corinna's question and then we'll follow. I want to ask a, a Global X question to, to bring it out. 
I'm currently using raise as a way to micro invest for someone who's new to investing in in anything at all. At what point should you consider enough funds to start looking at larger platforms, brokers, etc.? Look, raise is a good little product. I've got it myself. I think it's a great little starter portfolio. And the more you learn about investing, I like to do this analogy akin to uh, podcast equipment or photography. If you want to start photography, you're probably going to buy a cheap camera, get to learn how to use it. And then you'll be like, oh, I just need that little bit of extra exposure or light. You're like, oh, this camera or lens doesn't do that. So you'll naturally grow as you learn and, and do different things. Like when we started the podcast, I didn't have this mix pre uh, six recorded device. I had another one that wasn't as you know fancy and all that. And I've, I've slowly increased with my equipment because it's a bit of a passion and it's, I wanted things out of that equipment. But that's not to say the Zoom H6 recorder doesn't do its job. And with the Raise thing, they're a you know, good little one-stop shop they're not the cheapest portfolios in the world. They've got some cool features on the app. Um, it's a closed shop, so you can only invest in raised portfolio. So if you're like, oh, I like what you're saying about hydrogen or lithium and I want a global X portfolio to tack onto my bread and butter investing, you won't be able to do that with raise. So the question is, do I graduate all my wealth over to a platform or broker, which is considered the real world, quote unquote, or am I happy to stay with raise? Like there'd be plenty of people that have hundreds of thousands of dollars in raise. Like it's, it's all good. But I just think, you know, what did you say, Vince? The teacher will appear when the student is ready. That's, that's right. Oh, I don't think I said that first either. Yeah, Gandhi but, said that or someone. But um, the, I mean, one of the biggest and most valuable lessons you can learn from those apps apart from just getting started. Mm. So if you've never invested before, the lessons you're going to learn about yourself are worth the price of admission because it's an app, so it's sitting on your phone. It probably announces, you can probably set it to tell you what the price is every day and your reactions to that news will tell you more about yourself and your where you should be investing long term that it's hugely valuable. But, you know, can I get... If I've got five bucks, where else can I invest meaningfully? Well, micro-investing is where you should start. The roundup feature, even though it's not perfectly implemented because of our the way our payment system is so expensive, mm. um, it just gets you going, it gets you into the habit, and it teaches you about yourself. So mm. five stars from me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just think it's, it's the the... The, the next step is just it's that to your point it's it's natural it's not like you just know when you've run out of a, I don't know, run out of road and you're like I need to go do something else mm. but I do think I'm not I'm not going on a rant here but I do think that some of the platforms what they've done and I want to say platform like the brokerage platforms the Comsex the Amtrades etc um, who I know quite well and great people who work at these places but what they've done is they've just iterated over time and all they've done is add things so they go well what what all our people want they just want more. So they keep adding things on research, charting, whatever it might be, and I don't, I don't know if it's solving a, a, a lot of problems anymore. Like they just think they just got to keep adding things on to get in front of the game and you know, continue to whatever charge they charge for brokerage. So I think what what um, Comsec did well with Pocket to a certain degree is try to reinvent because they can't reinvent the whole platform. They can't mm. break that down and start again. So they try to do something else. And I was like, I certainly didn't play a role in actually building that. Someone, someone I know did and did a great job with that. 
play a little bit of a role about what's, what was sort of implemented, but restricting the choice, keeping the brokerage low, the reinvestment capacity, that was a great solution, I thought, for for younger investors. Yes and no, because I still believe with Comsec Pocket, there isn't a one-stop shop option. No, so, so you still are picking out a six. Yeah. And to go, again, we're going back to the Vanguard thing. I think you, you have to make decision making and, and that's but that's what Comtech's about it's about decision making because what they're going then what you're going to graduate to is the all-in platform where you go now you've got all this choice so it's the first step of what they do as a business um, where Vanguard we know what Vanguard's done with their platform especially with the, the recent one with the kids which you know I use for my kids mm. um, it's great because you can just go auto invest straight through into a uh, managed fund you know essentially no fees in the brokerage, great, great mm. solution for that. But, you know, again, what I hope that they would do is they're going to get old enough, they're not very young, but they will graduate to I want to spend more time on this because I see the, the fruits of my labour and how it works out. You know, mm. again, I'm coming from a lens of I want to, I do this a lot and that's why I want to spend my time on that. If you don't want to, again, a raise is a great mm. spot for that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's probably not where you should be investing half a million dollars. No, but there'd probably be people that do have that much money on there that I personally wouldn't. Um, it's definitely those people who are whinging about the difference between the VAS and the IVV. No, yeah, they no. base points a bit. But um, look, we might wrap it up. Um, but yeah, check out globalxetfs.com.au website. You can go to the website, click products, see they've got a handful of products uh, there. They're domiciled in Australia. Do you want yep. to just mention the advantages of that? Well, let's not go into into the, the whole world of WA Ben forms and tax and running into the, to the US. But yes, no, look, to do it really quickly, uh, you any anything that any distribution that comes out of so a dividend or distribution comes out of the US, you have to pay a tax on at thirty percent. The good thing is Australia's got what's called a tax treaty with the US, which means you sign this the best form of all time, named best as well, called the W eight Ben form, which gives you uh, a discount on that. But that form is inherently painful and has to be done at every level. So if they're Australian domiciled, which is a good question, which means you don't have to do that, the fund is doing it for you. You still get you get all the benefits of that. Mm. Um, but yes, look. Again, I, I'm not going to extol all the benefits of ETFs, but the website's always going to provide you. Like we're, we're trying, what we're trying to do, as part of what we talked about before with the US, with the US team, is we've got so much, which, which I think is great content, great research, great insights that we're going to put on the website, whether it's out of the US, or what we're going to build here um, with me and my team to give investors the opportunity to have a, like here's a view, take, take it and digest it. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't go and try to find the opposite view, as I said earlier, go do that. Mm. But we're trying to make it a little bit easier, a little bit more digestible at that thematic level. Because I think what the, what the, sometimes the problem with the Vanguards and Black Rocks, they just pitch too high mm. and they, and they talk about asset location, which can get boring quickly. You might love it, Vince, but. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So I'm over it already. Um, but so at least the thematic stuff's pretty, it's pretty interesting we're talking about decarbonisation we're talking about gold, we're talking about all these sort of more interesting well, obviously, a lot of technology, semiconductors. So I think that for me, that's interesting to read, it's interesting to write, it's interesting to research. So uh, we're going to continue to sort of build that out and give you know give investors that sort of that choice around that that space. And I will say, like I, I may have said it before when Kanish was on the podcast, but like when we work with other brands, I'm really careful that I'll give you an example. I said to Global X, I'm like, I'd love to work with you guys. I personally use your products. But I can't come on here and tell people to put 100% of their portfolio in a GX product. And they're like, totally agree. And Totally agree. And every product in the money world has its place. Every product isn't for everyone. 
But if you are interested in something that's a bit more themed or whatnot, check out the Global X list. You might already hold a GX product in your um, in your portfolio. Um, and just finally, you guys don't have a an equivalent bread and butter fund like uh, a two hundred or one stop shop. You, you're in no, the look themed at, world. Yeah, so we've kind of got those those pillars are sort of more around the thematics around the commodities. You know, so gold's our largest ETF. Um, just you know, you're buying the actual underlying bullion. It's sitting in a vault, so you know, you know that's all around safety. That that kind of mentality. And then we're doing a lot of sort of alternative income, which which you know, some fixed income, some what we call cover call ETFs as well, which which are certainly more more targeted at, at advisors. But you know, we've seen really lots of success out of the US. But no, we don't have any really of the ultra low cost bread and butter um, core, super core allocations. Mm. Um, that that might change. Like I think we, you know, we, what we want to do is we want to understand and assess, figure out, listen to advisors, listen to investors, and say, well, what do you, what's missing? You know, it's pretty full now on the on the spectrum anyway. But what's missing? And let's see if we can bring some bring some stuff out that's going to obviously resonate. Mm, awesome. Well, thank you, Blair and Global X for supporting my millennial money, and thanks, uh, Vince, for having a chat today. Thanks for having me, Claire. That's great. We'll um, we'll see you guys soon. It's a bit of a long one, but whatever. We're here now. Well, um, Long one's a good one. Yeah, we'll see you next campfire, friends. All right, bye. Bye-bye now. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 